the ROI on a book is actually amazing because as opposed to an article or a tweet, what a person puts into a tweet is anywhere from 20 seconds to five minutes of thought. But when you talk about a book, Jenny spent a long time thinking about this, researching it. So the ROI of spending five hours reading a book that someone spent 10 years thinking about is amazing. Welcome to the Book Society Podcast. My guest today is Eric Hoganson, aka Chico Feinstein. He and I are both Jutinos. He is of Mexican and Jewish descent, and I am of Puerto Rican and Jewish descent. Eric is a visual artist, a musician. The way that we met, you would think that we would have met because he was an artist and a musician, but we actually met in his other professional context as a political consultant. He was running the campaign for a Los Angeles mayoral candidate. We met working on a political campaign together. So Eric is a political strategist, a political consultant, a jack-of-all-trades political and also a reader. And the book that he picked is Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Resisting the Attention Economy was definitely the original title, and it was supposed to be like more of an academic paper. That's my guess from reading it. It's an interesting book. I wrestled with it a little bit. I initially didn't really like it. When we talked just a few weeks ago or a few days ago, I called it the hipster's guide to bird watching. <laughs> Right. I was, I was not even halfway through it. If I had not been reading this book for the podcast, I wouldn't have finished it. But I'm really glad that I did because there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. And the style of this book is very San Francisco, Berkeley, fart smelly. That's what I reacted to about it, that there are these moments of intense, profound realizations. And then there are these moments where, and I discovered that my neighbor is a person too. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pretty lame. But also as a writer myself, that's the kind of stuff that you put in thinking this happened. This is honest. I'm probably not the only person this has happened to. And she probably isn't. I respect the decision to put something like that, that makes you look ridiculous. That's part of the artistic process. And that's part of what art is, is to show yourself in the hopes that other people can resonate with what you're going through. Jenny O'Dell, How to Do Nothing. Why did you pick this book? I don't remember exactly what it was that drew me to this book. I can't remember if I was given it as a gift or if I saw it and wanted it, but I do know that this is a general topic I'm super interested in. This is an area of definite interest for me, which I think relates to my general interest in like the future and society and moving forward and stuff like that. But also she's an artist and I've been intrigued by her art and I'm researching her stuff. At some point I was attracted to it and I just devoured it. And I was like talking about it to everyone I saw <laughs> incessantly. But I also had a similar experience. She talks about how the book itself isn't wholly organized and isn't an interlocking whole and all these concepts and stuff aren't perfectly thought through and ironed out sort of in reflection to the title and the spirit of the book. It's hard to not personalize it. My own struggles, frankly, with social media on a personal level. I was doing some Facebook, whatever, like in the early teens, and I got off. I couldn't stand it. And it was very simple. I didn't feel good when I left my Facebook scrolling. And after a while, I said, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I don't feel good. So I quit. And I had a similar experience with Instagram, frankly, recently. And I quit at the beginning of the pandemic. I stopped Instagram completely. Just on a personal level, I relate to it that way. And then also politically and looking at regulations or whatever, I'm very influenced by all this. There's serious problems with how the attention economy 
is structured and how it kind of sucks our soul. And I don't think social networks themselves are bad, but I think when they're structured in a way that is monetizing our attention and manipulating our attention, I do think it's bad. And I think it's an important message and an important theme to be brought up. Like Tristan Harris, it's all just a general area of interest of mine. It should be said also that mass communication is part of what you do. You're not a hippie. This is part of your life. And communicating with people, knowing what they're thinking, trying to figure out what is going to persuade them in a certain direction is your job, your profession. Yeah. Every campaign I do, we have to solve who's doing social media. I work with social media consultants on a regular basis. I engage with the platform. I don't run away from it in my professional life. The instance I was talking about earlier were my personal experiences with the platforms. Yeah. One of the things that she quoted Mark Zuckerberg saying that you only have one identity. And in the future, the idea that you can be a different person at work and a different person among your friends is going to go away. And that that idea is inherently disingenuous, to paraphrase Zuckerberg. And that to me is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. I'm not an expert in this particular area, but I am interested in also personalities and stuff. I think there's research now that's showing that you literally have multiple perspectives. Your humanness Kind of like we were talking about, you want to introduce me. Like I have this political life. I have this artistic life. I have whatever else I have. And that's universal. People all have these different identities, I guess, or approaches in life. And yeah, the social media stuff, it just grinds all that down and presents it in a way. If I was to boil it down, it would be about authenticity and also the interpersonal experience that gets really whitewashed in social media that I just am not a personal fan of. Again, I don't have inherent problems with it. But yeah, I agree with that. That's pretty bullshit. Yeah. What struck me about that particular thing about you only having one identity is how demonstrably false that idea is. And that is kind of what social media is premised on. And for example, when you're interacting with different people, the expectations are different. I would never talk to you in the same manner that I talk to my son when he's done something bad, nor would I ever try to encourage you to go to the potty, which is completely inappropriate for one adult to do to another, but absolutely appropriate for an adult to do to a two-year-old. And I wouldn't and don't act the same way when I'm in a recording session as when I'm in a restaurant. You're in different situations and you have different expectations. And I guess on some degree, there is a core humanity consciousness that remains the same, but pinpointing that has eluded smarter people than me or you or Mark Zuckerberg for millennia. And I don't think that that's something that Facebook is going to bring out of this. I think if anything, social media and communicating in that way squelches that down and tries to simplify it. One other thing I thought was interesting about Jenny is her work was in technology and her life was in technology. And so it's this dichotomy between her experience and her art in this world and then this realization about the downfalls of it and the need for some space from it. After I read the book, I can't remember exactly where she goes into it, but like she talks about the observing the natural world where you live, even if you live in an urban environment. Like I started putting nuts and stuff on my balcony and then birds came and I saw the bird, like we saw crows. <laughs> For those who haven't read the book, there's a lot in this book about bird watching. So I wasn't just joking when I called it a hipster guide to bird watching. She's definitely a hipster who lives in Oakland and is from the suburbs and is really into bird watching. I have a friend who's into bird watching and I was never able to get into it. Reading this book has made me more interested in it. <laughs> Maybe in some kind of subconscious way to prepare for this. I've started looking at birds like <laughs> more frequently in the morning. Like I'm like going on a walk. I'm like, oh, there's these birds that are everywhere. It's interesting to notice those types of things, right? Because there is a lot of life 
in Los Angeles, especially in Los Angeles. One of the things I love about LA is that the parks in New York, where I'm from, were all something else, and then they got made into parks. And the parks in Los Angeles are the part of the city we just didn't develop, and now they're parks. So these are sort of the happy parts of how to do nothing, but there's some darkness in there just about what the attention economy does to your mind. And I've certainly felt that, but you were telling me that this book spoke to you when you read it because you were really in the midst of all that. And tell me about it. It's an ongoing thing. This is such a part of our lives all the time. It's an area of interest of mine. I relate to that thought that she has because I'm 44 years old and I grew up in the 90s and the internet was nothing but awesome. There was no negative when I was growing up and thinking about the internet and the future and technology. And it's so obvious that there is now. It's not obvious to everyone. And what's particularly, I think, concerning to me is that it's obvious to people who have resources and who have time to sit in the park and watch birds and things like that. You can imagine doing political campaigns, internal communication is super important. Like I remember in 2002, my campaign manager at the time had a Blackberry and the candidate had a Blackberry and I didn't. And I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Being political and working on campaigns, I was always a little bit ahead of the curve when it came to that stuff. It's like, there's no way it's not good for work to be able to communicate with more people faster. Up until a certain point, seven, eight years ago, when it started to not be. So this kind of like turn, how it relates to my work. I remember standing in line in Chicago in 2008 to get my first iPhone. And I remember getting my iPhone. We were like on vacation there and went to a hotel and I was like enthralled. It had a map, it had a camera, like we were taking out pictures. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. People even a little bit younger than us, I don't think realize how fundamentally different it was than anything else. It was like a device that came out of nowhere. You can see the evolution of it in hindsight, but we went from overnight, basically, everybody having flip phones where you text messaged with the keypad. Really a profound change. With the iPhone, this is a phone, a map, and it's an iPod at the same time. It was crazy. You know, so like I love music. So it just kind of blew my mind and was so amazing and so great. We just accepted it to be that way. And as it's gone on, the picture gets more complicated. Facebook also connecting people to each other. It doesn't sound like there's a downside to that. That sounds positive. I'm reminded of Henry David Thoreau. They had just connected telegraph wire from Maine to Texas. And so it was this news that used to take days to get communication between Maine and Texas. There was a headline that said something like, the people of Maine are going to be able to instantaneously talk to the people of Texas. And Henry David Thoreau's comment was, that's great. I wonder if they'll have anything to say to each other. <laughs> because what does someone from Texas and someone from Maine have in common? And on the one hand, when he was writing that, it was more true than it is today. On the other hand, Eric, you and I are friends. We haven't seen each other in person in a while. And if I moved to Texas and you moved to Maine, we would remain friends and we would communicate virtually or we would visit each other because it's very easy to do that. So while that was true for Thoreau, it is less true for us in part because of technology. And I do think that that's a good thing. I think that being able to have friends that are outside of your local community is excellent. There's a ton of good things, obviously, that this stuff provides, but the mental health piece is super obvious how bad it can be. I took a screenshot of a image of the second Trump impeachment, and it's outside the impeachment hall. 
and there's like five people standing there, younger people, and they're all looking at their phone. <laughs> like every one of them, they're waiting for whatever. And every single one is like this. For me, that's like particularly poignant because I remember doing campaign work 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And that was like a sign of how amazing you were. You're just like engrossed in your stuff. You have this technology. It's not anymore. It seems kind of like sad and pathetic. Obviously, people need to read their emails or read a text message and whatever once in a while. But to be sucked into your phone, it's not good. It's just not good. That's not what people are doing with their phones most of the time, I don't think. Email is a sort of profound form of communication because it's a document of any length that can be sent instantly. And that's pretty amazing. I really kind of think there's no downside to email. It also files itself, which is also amazing. I remember I used to have files. I don't have files anymore. Email is my form of filing. At my first job, I had binders to keep track of important documents that, or even stuff that was emailed to me because at the time our server would only allow you to have like a hundred emails at a time. And then it would just start deleting them. And so I would print out important ones and keep them in a folder. And that sounds prehistoric now, but I do think that email is an amazing thing. And that is sort of how it started. But I think when people are staring at their phone, they're refreshing a news feed, they're looking at Twitter. And one of the things that Jenny O'Dell does a really great job of putting into relief, which is I think something we all feel, but something I had not articulated, which is that the attention economy presents you with massive amounts of information with absolutely no context. Which is useless to know that a politician said something is meaningless unless you know why they said it and who they said it to and where they said it and what their relationship is to that person and that issue. That kind of nuance just cannot be captured in a headline. And I think that the primary source of news, whether most people, to some degree, including myself from time to time, the primary source of people's news feeds, I think it's probably headlines. One of the things I'm really passionate about is learning. I think learning is super interesting and fun and helps you grow and everything. And I remember reading someone, he was saying that you should read books. The ROI on a book is actually amazing because as opposed to an article or a tweet or whatever, what a person puts into a tweet is anywhere from 20 seconds to five minutes of thought. A blog post could be a week or two of research. But when you talk about a book, Jenny spent a long time thinking about this, researching it. So the ROI of spending five hours reading a book that someone spent 10 years thinking about is amazing. You know, it's very, very profound. And I don't think people understand that. She talks about Hockney in here, David Hockney, a great artist, another LA artist like yourself. And one of the things that she quotes him as saying is that a painting represents time because it represents the time that someone put in to making it. And a photograph is not the same thing. A photograph is a snapshot and it captures something kind of meaningless in extremely high fidelity. God, it's so cool. I didn't remember that quote. I mean, you know, obviously I'm a visual artist, I'm a painter. And like, that's part of what I love about painting. I mean, I was telling you earlier, I saw my grandma this weekend in Chicago. She was so sweet because I had showed her my paintings and everything. I showed her my music and she just always just consumes it. She's 90 years old and sweet old Mexican lady. It's like you're painting. It's like, you don't need a therapist. You do this painting and it helps you. I was like, yeah, grandma, that's exactly right. There's that element to it. And then there's this moment when you're with the painting and when you're communing with the colors and the time. And, you know, I look at a painting I did last week. I was listening to his music. I had the paint and it was all of one piece. The whole experience of creating this art and creating this thing while being in this moment, that's what I enjoy about it. 
that is so incredible when it works. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't, but when it works, it's really fun. Yeah, so you have the same experience that Hockney had making paintings. He used photography also, but over long periods of time, he would photograph a bunch of the same things. So we now rent two houses in Los Angeles because it turned out that it's cheaper to have a place for the grandparents to live than it is to constantly have babysitters. So sort of borrowing it from my neighbor who's out of town. And I was talking to her and she's old and <laughs> she's a Fox News viewer, basically. And she started talking to me about politics. And I said, I don't really watch the news. And she said, well, if you don't watch the news, then you really shouldn't vote. And at that point, I'm not going to argue with her because she's letting me rent her house for basically nothing. So I just said, yeah, all right, sure. But I thought about where do I get my news and I consider myself to be informed and why do I consider myself to be informed? And I have a love and passion for history and for books about history. And I read a lot about the history of a lot of different cultures and a lot of different societies, including our own. And I found that that kind of context makes you informed because you can catch up on the news of the day in 45 minutes. I might not know what Mitch McConnell said to Chuck Schumer yesterday and how that relates to what they're going to do with each other today, but people know that. You can find that out. But knowing just the overall trends and how democracy works and how politics works, I found it more informative and it keeps me a little bit more sane. When I do catch up on the news, I feel like I understand the context more. Someone please argue with me that like I'm sitting here saying I don't really read the news, but I feel like I'm informed. Someone please tell me I'm an idiot. Anyone listening, like please email me and argue about this because I feel like watching the news is completely pointless. And it's also 22 minutes to fill time between car commercials is not going to tell you what's going on in the world. I don't want to disparage all the news, but it just seems like it's getting worse. What passes for a news show these days is like this long winded exposition. And then at the end of it is, so what do you think? Or, and go ahead. And then the very beginning of every next statement is, yeah, that's totally right. And then a long exposition reinforcing what the first person said. That is of no interest to me. I have no interest in that at all. That's not investigating anything. That's not interviewing someone. That's just bantering about the views that you both share. I think you're right. And that's because the alternative is not fun. You get a dopamine hit by having your views reinforced. I don't, and I don't think you do, but you and I could probably watch MSNBC and feel neutral about it. We could drink beers, it could be on in the background. But I think if we were watching Fox News in the same situation, we might find more to be upset about, even though they are functionally kind of the same thing. They have different tactics, they have different standards on different issues, but they're functionally biased news sources. But the alternative is for us to watch C-SPAN. I get... Copyright Royalty Board regular updates on what's going on in the Copyright Royalty Board. And these are legal documents. They pertain to my career as a musician. And so I try to read them. Sometimes I can't because it's learning and it's uncomfortable and some of it is useless information and it's hard to sort through. And so it would be nice if someone could aggregate that for me. But there's an implicit bias in anyone who's doing that because there are decisions that are made whenever you're saying yes to some information and no to others. But that brings me to a sort of profound realization I had reading this book and the reason why I said earlier that I would have put it down and then I'm glad I didn't. And that is, she describes all of these art projects that I would hate. One of the things that I've always hated and always considered to be anathema to real art is art that needs to be explained. And a lot of these artists that she references, and I don't remember all their names, but they're her contemporary, my contemporaries, I should say, our contemporaries. She just references all these 
projects that are these high concept things that if you just walked into a museum and saw it, you would have no idea what the hell it was or what it meant or why it meant that. And then I realized that after decades of thinking that this was stupid and feeling the same way about music, that I think that music that you don't understand intuitively is not good music. I realized that all I'm doing is substituting the artist's explanation for the explanation that society has just conjured. The reason that music makes sense is because of hundreds of years of convention. So instead of choosing to learn and choosing to view someone else's perspective that they have taken time and effort to cultivate for me, I've just decided to reinforce the views that I already have, which is that major chords going into other major chords sound nice. <laughs> so I learned something from this book, which is that that kind of art is more challenging and also can move you on a deeper level for that reason. Yeah, which also is difficult on these platforms, right? It's difficult to get to. Now you can be exposed to it or you can hear about an opening or, you know, there's all these myriad of good things that come from it, but it just gets stripped down. We are talking about the news and how the underpinnings of it are making money and like dopamine hits, which I think is exactly relevant to the attention economy. I'm kind of radical on this. I'm of the belief, and this isn't something I necessarily advise politically, just what I think personally, we have the power to completely regulate the attention economy. In my opinion, my humble opinion, I think we should outlaw any platform that's free and that uses your attention as a monetization device. Period. End of story. Fuck you. This is my attention. I want it. I want to know what's going on with it. You can't do it. This is where my political mind comes in. There's this natural thinking that, oh, well, these companies are just doing it and that's the way it is and it's capitalism, so we have to... No, we literally as a society can decide how we want these things to be structured and how we want these things to operate. And we can say, if you want to join a social network, if you want to have a network that shares photographs and art, great, subscribe, pay a subscription. There's all these email subscriptions now and podcasts and Patreon, but then your attention is the subscription for Facebook and Instagram. What the hell? Like I would gladly pay Instagram a hundred bucks a year to be on the network. And then that wipes away all these crazy algorithms that are the ones that are messing the head. And then it has no incentive to keep you on the platform because you've already paid. Exactly. Like I pay a subscription to Pro Tools. Pro Tools doesn't send me emails and try to get me to open the program and make more music. It doesn't give a shit. I paid for it. That's it. Right. You can use it however you want. You can connect with people. We're like brainwashed. And what I think it's connected to is the beginning, the utopian beginning of the internet, where it was like, oh, well, everything should be free. That's garbage. That's not true. And we're still kind of floating on that concept as we're getting crushed by the BS of the attention economy. And I just think we can like just break three of all of that and just regain control of it. I'll say I disagree with you that we can. I don't necessarily disagree with you that we should. Yeah. It's a pretty radical position that I, you know, that it's not everyone's cup of tea, but that's really what I believe. I've worked in television for a while and I made a joke before about the news being 22 minutes to fill time between car commercials, but that is what network television is. Nobody makes money off of a TV show. I mean, you make money off of selling ads on the TV show and the secondary sources of income are the actors get famous, merchandising, all of that stuff. But the primary purpose of a network news show from a capitalistic perspective is to hold your attention so that they can sell that attention to people who are trying to sell other stuff. That is the primary purpose of it. The primary purpose of it is not to inform you. I would argue that there's fundamental differences with that than the brain science manipulation that happens with these social platforms. So I'm not saying we outlaw any advertisement-based business, but 
Your attention is literally one of the most valuable things you have. It's your time. It's the only non-renewable resource, right? So important. I do this visual I've been talking about, and I decided after months of hand-wringing and whatever to get back on Instagram. So there's an Instagram Chico Feinstein account, blah, blah, blah. I can't have it on my phone, Lucas. I don't have it on my phone. I have it on my computer and I put the post up there and I check it on my computer. I'm a human being. I see how many people like it and all this shit, right? But I cannot have it on my phone. It wouldn't be a good situation. It would just suck the half an hour and this and that. It's hard to deal with. And I tell other people, I'm not really ashamed of it. I think there's a mental makeup I have that makes it particularly difficult to manage that stuff. I think it's everyone, or maybe it's just the two of us, but it's designed to suck you in. And it's also the algorithm, I think, is a lot less intelligent than people think. But I think it is very complicated where it probably prompts you in different ways than it prompts me because it knows that we have different personality types. And there is some irony to like we read this book about how to do nothing. And Jenny O'Dell acknowledges this. She's on these platforms, too. She's bigger than either of us on all of these platforms. This is partly her bread and butter is being kind of an influencer. And it's like a bunch of heroin addicts talking about how to use less heroin. Look, obviously, I'm not advocating you use no heroin. That's ridiculous. But here's how you can sustainably manage your heroin intake. And there is something to that. And I mean, I'll tell you my battles. So I blew up. I had a Twitter account that had about 1500 followers. I just deleted it a couple months ago. My literary agent is not super pleased about that, but whatever, it was making me crazy. So I did it. I don't really have a Facebook. I have Instagram. Always making it crazy. How would you describe that? I found that anything I tweeted that got any attention was just stupid or meaningless or mean, frankly, for the people who know me well, I'm like a pretty nice easygoing guy, but like, I definitely have a mean streak. It can come out on the internet and I'm quick witted. And so I would get a lot of likes for saying shit to people I disagreed with that I would never say to their face. And that made me feel really bad, even though that is kind of the style of the internet. I also just found myself getting outraged over nothing, either stuff I have no control over or stuff that really doesn't matter. You know, the summer, the civil unrest brought about by a complete lack of leadership and the systemic oppression of people of color in this country and the pandemic. It was a confluence of a lot of stuff, but it was real. People of color are disproportionately marginalized in our society and black people get shot by the police all the fucking time. Like this is a real problem that really needed to be acknowledged, but outrage was not really helpful. I went to protests and I'd supported things in the best way that I could with a pregnant wife and a one-year-old, but there's just a limit to how much rage you can have. This is sort of the last thing she says in the conclusion, talking about the Parkland shooting, is that David Hogg, is that how you say it? One of the things that he said is that rage can get you started, but it can't sustain you. And I found Twitter to be nothing but sustained rage. So that's why I quit. Twitter to me is just the very essence of all this stuff. But of course, in my political work, it's there and I try to deal with it. We have a kind of a little turn of phrase with Twitter. Twitter is where the journalists are and Facebook is where the voters are. So people are on Twitter that are really important that you got to deal with. And it's not to be ignored under any circumstance if you're running a political campaign of any magnitude. But on a personal level, getting news, are you kidding me? I can get news from a billion other places besides Twitter. I do not need to be on Twitter to get the fucking news. Someone's talking about something important, like I'll find out. I'll engage it at that point, but not otherwise. That's kind of what I was getting at with not really watching the news is that unless you're a news professional, there is no advantage to being up to the minute. Mark Andreessen said this. I thought it was 
pretty good. Like on one end is recent, like what's happening now? What's the news? What's the information about the world that's happening? And then what's timeless? What will stand the test of time? Those are the two main poles of information consumption that he has, which I find quite persuasive. That's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think this book is a touchstone to some of those timeless themes. We talked about Thoreau and she talks about fucking Seneca. I mean, how to do nothing is not a new topic. <laughs> you know, this is not some profound thing she thought of when she was in the Rose Garden. Yeah, Epicurus. She knows the history of this philosophy, which is interesting. This is profoundly human, good stuff. And I think what was so cool about the book is that it's touching that, but it's doing it cutting through all the technology from a person who's been intimately involved in it, and obviously in San Francisco and all that, right up close with it. That's why I thought it was interesting. And I think it's important. I picked it for us to talk about because I think it's an important message in our time. And our previous president was very influential in all this. She started writing it after the election. It's a part of the thing. And underlying a lot of our comments is, you know, his presence over the past four years of our life. In case anybody was unclear, the author is not a fan of the 45th president of the United States. I wouldn't say it's all over the book, but it's not unclear. There is something that I've been thinking about a lot and I've been reading about for my own book, I've been reading about the history of technology. And I feel like a companion book to this is Susanna Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. That is sort of about how and why they're harvesting our attention. This book is, I think, about what it's like for us to have our attention harvested. These two things together are models for companies and to use computers to predict human behavior. And what I'm starting to learn is that this is like alchemy. This is a failed rabbit hole that humans go down every couple of hundred years to try to predict the future. And it cannot be done. You'd think we would have learned by now. And the reason that it's so important to just keep doing it is that we develop things along the way that are important. The scientific method largely came out of the attempt to turn lead into gold. Now, we never turned lead into gold, and we're never going to turn lead into gold. And I think it's highly likely that we're never going to really predict human behavior because it's just too complicated. And granted, Facebook is probably better at it than anyone else because they have larger data and better ways to analyze it. But it's never going to reach, I don't think, the climax of Laplace's demon, where if you just know every position of everything in the universe and what direction it's heading in, you can predict literally everything that will ever happen. It was struck when I was rereading it, there's a story about John Muir. And how he worked in like a factory or something. And he like invented some productivity desk with an alarm and stuff. And then he got injured. And sort of that's part of how his life took the whole naturalist turn that it did. So it's that dichotomy, this hunt for productivity. I mean, my life, I was obsessed with productivity and my career and technology and communications and all this stuff. And now I'm calling for this radical reorganizing of the attention economy. It's an evolution and the yin and yang sort of, you kind of need both. I fully appreciate the irony of the fact that two middle-aged men who have achieved a tolerable level of success are sitting here talking about how success isn't that important. <laughs> and it's true. It's not important now. It was important before. And there is something to be said for that, that on the other side of this rainbow or on the other lawn that I guess is greener, there are still problems. But that's a big problem, right? Is that like, here we are saying like, yeah, it's not that important, but I couldn't have told my 20 year old self that being constantly plugged in wasn't that important because it was important at that time. I was listening to someone talk about ambition. The concept of ambition is 
particularly resonant with me. And the turn of phrase or the way to kind of understand it is when you're young, this ambition can be a fuel. I used it. I took whatever ambition I had and moved it forward. But at some point, this ambition becomes hollow and it becomes empty as you become older. And as you're saying, some success or whatever, it doesn't hold anything. You sort of lose everything that's important in life if, as you get older, you clutch to this concept of ambition. And I think that's some good how to do nothing thinking there. Let go of your ambition once it goes too far. So I'm going to thank all of our listeners for their attention because we've now monopolized it. Thank you for that. I'm going to close by asking you the question that I ask everyone. And so please recommend to our audience one book by a living author and one book by a dead author that you think they should read. One book by a living author. Robert Wright wrote a book called Why Buddhism is True, which I really, really enjoyed. I guess I'll just go with Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Excellent. Two Buddhism books. Those are great books. I haven't read Why Buddhism is True, but Siddhartha is a favorite of mine. Twitter is just like the comment section of news. Yeah. And that's it. Without the actual news, don't it's just the comments. It. Yeah, I don't, I don't need to read that. <laughs> <laughs>